Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. He is seen coming down the escalators of the Southern Cross Railway Station um, on CCTV footage. Uh, he gestures to uh, the little girl to stay there, and she's three years old, and then he leaves her. She's wearing a pumpkin patch um, jacket. They called him Pumpkin for that reason. In this episode of Crimes NZ, we're looking at a case that shocked the world and involved an international manhunt. I'm Jesse Mulligan, and I'm joined by former detective Simon Scott, who was in charge of the so-called Pumpkin case, which kicked off when a three-year-old girl was found abandoned in Melbourne in 2007. It was the most memorable case. Uh, it's kind of overtook uh, my life there for a while, but um, in the end we got the, uh, a really good result. So for a bit of background, who was Nyan Jew? I think his surname is pronounced Schwer. Uh, he was well, he was a purported martial arts expert, and I think he'd been to New Zealand a couple of times, but came to New Zealand in 1996. Uh, he actually applied for refugee status. Subsequently, was uh, he became a resident in 1998. He was heavily involved in in uh, Chinese media, and he uh, he had um, a martial arts group. I think that he um, he trained. Anan Lu came to New Zealand in 2002. She was a um, English language student. Um, they met in December of 2002 because Nyan Swear had. Uh, put an ad in uh, the Chinese Times, I think it was, for a flatmate, uh, Anan Lu, answered that uh, ad and uh, moved in. Uh, they began a relationship and she fell pregnant in uh, March, April 2003 uh, and they had a little girl pumpkin in December of that year. They've lived in various different uh, addresses across Auckland but in 1997, they were living in the address in Keystone Avenue. And Nyanjwe, as we um, as we will learn, was abusive. In fact, ended up killing Anan. But uh, it sounded like their relationship went particularly, or, or his abusive behaviour started after the the birth of that child. Yeah, I think um, it was an is it quite a sad relationship? Um, you know, consistent with a lot of domestic violence. Uh, related relationships, it was ongoing. You know, some of the assaults were quite serious. Uh, he was he was imprisoned for one particular assault, and there was a, a an incident where uh, she'd fled to Wellington, um, and uh, without 
his knowing where she was and he found her and travelled to Wellington and broke into the house and it was quite a violent incident there as well. So it was it was a, a violent relationship and we think that the issue was that he wanted um, a boy and the first child, Pumpkin, obviously was a girl. He wanted a, uh, you know, a, a boy um, to have a son for, um, mm. for himself So and that didn't occur. When she was in Wellington, it sounded like she struck up a bit of a relationship with uh, the man she was she'd rented a room from. Yeah, I think they became friends rather than a relationship. Not, not. We were never one hundred percent sure how far that friendship went, but um, they, she certainly was living in a in a house with a, another Chinese uh, male uh, in, in Wellington, in Johnsonville, in Wellington, who ended up chasing Jouet uh, away when he came down. It sounded like quite a confrontation. Yeah, it was um, a significant confrontation. I think it was the middle of the night, and and we tried to break in. Um, and and uh, Song, I think the guy's name was, uh, he confronted him and chased him down the road. And uh, Shui went back to Auckland after that. So that was in two thousand seven. That was July, I think, July August. Mm. What happened in September, eleventh of September, two thousand seven? They ended up getting back together, obviously, which you know, it was. It, a sad decision in itself. But they were living in the Keystone Ave address. There was another couple who lived, uh, it was a normal suburban house. There's another Chinese couple living in the back of the address. And Pumpkin had been at kindergarten during the day and Shui had been at work. Anan Lu, the last time she is seen is on Tuesday the 11th of September at the address by the flatmates. She made a purchase actually from a local store and then the flatmates, I think it was about 8 o'clock at night, went out for a walk for a couple of hours. Uh, And we think it is at that time that uh, Swear murdered her in the house. Uh, He strangled her with his yellow tie. He wrapped her up in his um, dressing gown and placed her in the boot of his Honda Rafaga vehicle, which was at the property. And then did what? We think he um, parked the car on the street, and that's where it stayed. He actually did a couple of things. He went at about 20 past 12 the next morning. He actually went to an ASB vault and took something out of uh, a safety deposit box, which we have CCTV footage for. And then he was later stopped in Roscommon Road and Wirree Road uh, by police because he was... Um, he was driving erratically, and they spoke to him about his driving. He hadn't been drinking, and so they, uh, I think they warned him and let him go. But basically the next morning he took Pumpkin back to kindergarten and went to work. And then the next day, which was the Thursday, he visits a travel agent and buys a ticket, a return ticket to Melbourne. And he, uh, he talks to the travel agent about whether... If he bought a ticket for his three-year-old daughter, uh, whether he could get it refunded. So in the morning, he just buys the one ticket, um, and it was for a flight that night at six o'clock. And then he went back about three o'clock and purchased a ticket for Pumpkin. And then they go out to the airport. They take the uh, a Honda Fit motor vehicle, which was uh, Anan Lu's vehicle. They park it at the airport. It's a Qantas flight, I think, and they flew to Melbourne. There, they go into Melbourne City. Uh, they start a hotel. The next morning, he gets up and goes to another travel agent. 
And he talks to the travel agent about maybe going to South Africa, maybe going to London. The travel agent talks to them about going to, I think it's Vancouver or San Diego, but he settles on uh, planning a trip to Los Angeles. So he, he flies, uh, he plans a trip for the Saturday, Melbourne to Los Angeles. So then on the Saturday morning, he gets up, he takes his... Uh, his daughter Pumpkin to the Southern Cross Railway Station about 8am in the morning. He is seen coming down the escalators of the Southern Cross Railway Station um, on CCTV footage. Uh, he goes round to the side of the escalator. Uh, he gestures to uh, the little girl to stay there, and she's three years old. And then he leaves her. Uh, he goes back up the escalators and then goes out to the airport and boards a flight Man. to... Uh, Actually, what happened was that flight transitioned um, through Auckland. So he went back to Auckland, huh. stayed a few hours, and then I think it was 3 o'clock on the Saturday, he flies off to LA. Just to imagine what it would take to leave your, your own daughter at a railway yeah. station and walk off. Well, it was quite powerful evidence to show to the jury, you know, that the circumstances, what circumstances would make you do that. Yeah. Mm. And then she um, was the, found... The little girl, well, she was quickly found. Uh, she was standing there all alone. And she was approached by a passerby. She was actually approached by a, an elderly Chinese couple who spoke to her for a, for a few moments and they went, went away because she looked scared and she looked hungry. Mm. And they came back and gave her an apple. And then there was quite a commotion. Authorities were alerted that she was there. And she was distraught. You know, obviously communication was difficult for her. And so th th they were caring for her, but they had no idea where she was from. They had no idea what her name was. She we was wearing a pumpkin patch um, jacket. And um, they call called her pumpkin for that reason. And then it took some time to find out anything about her. And at one point, she says plane or she says airport or she says a, a word uh, that directs them to make inquiries out at the airport mm. um, out at, out at um, Melbourne's airport so authorities out there spent hours and hours and hours going through CCTV footage trying to find both Schwer and Pumpkin and eventually they do they do find them on CCTV footage it was sometime on Sunday maybe Sunday evening it may, may have been five or six o'clock they were able to then cross-reference uh, those images to their identities. And then I think it was about 11.30 on the Sunday night, Interpol Canberra emailed Interpol New Zealand to Wellington outlining that Pumpkin had been abandoned. They were able to identify who she was and that uh, Nine Swear had um, gone to... LA. Now at that stage he was through the border um, and he also gave a false name of the hotel on his boarding card into the United States yeah. so we, we weren't going to be able to find or it was going to be very difficult for us to find him right from the get go. I guess now is around the time that you get involved Simon. Yeah well there was um, there was quite a bit of a delay through, that was through Monday, the uh, the addresses that we were given were wrong, and then later the Keystone Avenue address came up later in the morning, and then police started to visit that address. 
Uh, so we visited that address a couple of times, and then on the evening, police find a note, a note in that property saying, "I um, we have gone to Wellington to pick up my wife. And then they also find an unloose uh, handbag, which had her driver's licence and other credit cards and things like that in it. So I don't actually start the, uh, my work until the next morning, which was, I think it's Tuesday the 18th. Um, I was asked to lead the investigation about 7.30 in the morning. And so there was quite a bit of work to do. It was already a, quite a big media event. Um, I remember it uh, being mentioned in the news during the weekend. Mm. Chinese news media had already uh, knew about it, knew about it through the Monday, and they were already outside the address. They'd visited the address. So it was a significant, um, already a significant media event. Um, but we wanted to do things right, so we we decided that we wanted to do a search warrant. We had to apply for a search warrant, which took about, oh, I don't know, six hours. Mm. Uh, I think the rules have changed on how you get search warrants these yeah. days, but... Um, it took about six hours to do that. We had to get a team together. That team didn't meet till about one o'clock in the afternoon. And by the time we had the search warrants in place, because we all wanted to search warrants for both both cars and also Keystone Ave. So it was important that we could make sure we got those search warrants so we could have, you know, seize the evidence that we'd find in those in those places. And I should point out uh, at this point that the, the body is in the boot of the car, which is what, outside the address? Yes, the body of um, Analu was in the uh, Honda Rafaga in the in the boot, and I must say, you know, that is on me. We made, or I made certain decisions uh, during that day that, um, you know, meant that uh, the body was um, was not found. I guess, uh, and the, but the very least thing we should have done is put tape around it, and uh, you know, that's on me. Just one other point: there was a mention of. What, whether people didn't smell the the body, the, the, an Anlu's uh, body, there was no smell with um, with her body, and uh, was to do with ear movement and how the the boot was sealed. So um, uh, th- there was no smell to, I guess, uh, alert people to the fact that the body was in the boot. Yeah, at the time that was a fairly big story. I think that the um, the boot hadn't been checked, right? That must have been pretty hard for you. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you've got to take those things on the chin, though. It's um, you know. Uh, yeah, when you're leading those investigations, sometimes you don't get things right, and you know I certainly didn't get that that right at that time. But it was a, a beginning of the inquiry. It was the first day, uh, and it was a large investigation over three different countries, and you know we we had a lot of work to do. So you eventually do discover the body. Do you remember that moment? Yes, I do. I um, uh, it was the next morning. Uh, We'd had a lot of staff to come on, coming on, so we were ramping up the investigation. I don't know how many staff came on the next morning, but we we wanted to be really careful about the investigation of that car because we it was his car, it was locked, and so we wanted to make sure that any forensic evidence we had was there that we we could um, obtain. So the guys were really careful. They took their time, and then they they popped the boot, and and uh, the body was in was in there. So. It was significant, and uh, you know, it was a it was a, a, a pretty important moment for the investigation. So, time to start looking for Nayan Jouer, and where do you look? He was in the states. Um, we knew that through uh, immigration and obviously his travel records. But what we wanted to do was 
start the process to extradite him back to New Zealand. And what we needed to do was put together essentially a prosecution file in New Zealand for murder that we could then, through the mutual assistance treaty that we have with the United States, approach their authorities to um, essentially have a warrant to arrest signed in the United States. And so that process took probably a week or so, but uh, it went through our, I think it was internal affairs, through to their Justice Department, and then it went to a, a local court in California where a judge uh, reviewed the evidence and then he signed uh, a warrant to arrest and so he was then a wanted person in the United States. And that's a pretty interesting story in its own right. Uh, you attracted the attention of some TV producers. The US Marshals were then uh, offered to us as the right uh, group in the United States to uh to have this job to find him because they aren't investigators they are they find people they they uh they find fugitives and so we were put on to the u.s marshal's office uh one of the u.s marshal's offices in california uh that's one of the first things they said we should do is um that we could put on uh swear was put on the 100 Most Wanted list and went on their website and they suggested he should go on America's Most Wanted. The producers there did a great job. I think it was a six-minute video of the case and it aired in, I think it was October or November. We didn't actually get a lot of information from that, but it was aired again on the 28th of December between Christmas and New Year. We got several leads and one was in Houston, Texas where he was staying in a boarding house or a hotel I think it was a hotel and the manager of that hotel recognized him and then he knew he was um, driving a car and it was a bluebird I think a vehicle and he had the registration number and he called uh, authorities and alerted them to swear being in, uh, in or near the hotel but by the time uh, authorities came to visit he'd gone and he he, he kind of uh, smelt something was up so he left uh, but we had that the, the significant thing for that is that we had his registration number and then that registration number was uh, pinged by the automatic registration plate readers throughout the highways through the bottom part of the United States through Mississippi and Alabama I always remember it was Biloxi, I think, and Mobile were uh, came up, and we get these notifications from the marshals saying this had happened and that had happened. Sometimes they were related to this, and sometimes they weren't. And at one time, he was actually um, stopped by a state trooper on a, a motorway, and he was asleep in his car. And the uh, the um, state trooper spoke to him, and he said that he was just tired and he'd had he'd had a sleep. And so then the state trooper let him drive away. Mm. And then he ran the plate, and the plate was wanted, um, which wasn't oh. helpful. <laughs> so, so he. Uh, tried how, to... how was he eventually caught then? So, what we really were keen on was doing a media release uh, through the Chinese uh, ethnic Chinese newspapers through the bottom half of the United States. And Noreen Hegarty, who was our media person at Auckland City District Police, organised that. Uh, they they created a. A media piece uh, with his photo, and that was spread through Chinese media and uh, and through that that part of the United States. It was seen uh, by a group of Chinese nationals in Chambly in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. They said that guy is. Uh, we've been speaking to him because uh, 
he wanted to buy a dry cleaning business. Mm. And so they called him because they had his number uh, and organized for him to come back to mm-hmm. their address to talk about the dry cleaning business. And they had a whole bunch of them in this room. Wow. And, um, and um, they let him, he came in, uh, they shut the door behind him and basically they jumped him. And uh, hogtied him, uh, I think it was with his own pants. And then they called the Shambly police. And the Shambly police came to see what was going on. And uh, I don't think any of them really could speak English very well. And so the police didn't know what they were talking about. Um, and they were pointing to this, uh, his photo in a Chinese news- newspaper, was, which was all in Chinese. And so they didn't sort of uh, work out what was going on until they went back to the police station they searched the records and found him. Found that he had uh, he was wanted for murder in New Zealand. He was arrested uh, and uh, appeared in court a day later. Was flown back to New Zealand with a couple of officers and then put on trial. and And how was how was that trial? As you remember, were you confident going into it? Yeah, I think we were fairly confident. We'd actually gathered quite a bit of evidence against him. There was forensic evidence, there was circumstantial evidence, but there was also similar f- fact evidence, you know, oh, that he had beaten Ananu before. There was uh, charges had already been laid. He'd, found, he'd been found guilty before he'd gone to jail over it. And so it built a, a fairly good case, we think. Um, Aaron Perkins was the Crown solicitor and did a great job uh, with presenting uh, presenting the evidence. And uh, I thought in the end we did a good job of putting the case together and putting the matter in front of the all-woman jury. There's 12 women on the jury. And he denied it, by the way. Yeah, he did. He did. When the verdict was entered, he he um, stood up and, and said unfair, um, and it wasn't him, which I'll uh, always remember. Yeah. But um, it was a lot of work. We, there was a... A lot of work put into that uh, over three different countries. Uh, there's 50 to 60 staff working on the homicide inquiry in New Zealand. You know, we had great cooperation with different services. Uh, the marshals were great to deal with. We had, you know, we were dealing with um, our police liaison officer in Washington. It was Sandra Manison and the police liaison officers in in China as well. It was a it was an awesome inquiry to to be a part of and and some. Great work by staff on the inquiry, and you know I think that we ended up. Uh, it wasn't a great start, but um, it was a really, really good investigation, and, and uh, in the end, it was. Uh, you know, we we're really happy with the result. And what happened to Pumpkin? Um, Pumpkin was put into the custody of her grandmother, who was from China. And her grandmother, we built a really good relationship with uh, the grandmother. We got her, <clears throat> we got her number early in the inquiry and contacted her and updated her with um, with what was going on. She came to New Zealand, and there was a whole issue about custody of uh, Pumpkin. And in the end, the grandmother got uh, custody of her. They live in China. Uh, I think she's still living with the family. I don't have a update. I think she'd be. 18 now and I think I used the word thrive she was thriving and I think she continued to thrive in China You've been listening to Crimes NZ hosted by me Jesse Mulligan this week I was joined by former detective Simon Scott 
Simon, thanks for your time. An amazing team goes into producing the Crimes NZ podcast. Melita Tull, Charlie Drever, Sam Hollis and Ayana Piper-Helian. This episode was edited by Grant Walker and Liz Garten. Tim Watkin is executive producer of RNZ Podcasts. Crimes NZ is available on all good podcasting apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio and Google. It's even on YouTube now if that's how you'd prefer to listen. Remember to follow the series so you don't miss any new episodes. And look out for other great podcasts from RNZ like Know My Town. Quick listens which explain how some of Aotearoa's best-loved places got their names. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.